a lot of companies are completely different companies online to in-store. What a lot of companies are, could do a lot better at is trying to make these channels work together. So how do you make the in-store channel help online sales? How do you make online help the in-store channel? So if you've been looking at something online, we could detect you from your mobile phone and then offer up interesting offers as you walk in through the store. So the channels are trying to help each other. Welcome to Nick Lansley's Innovation Lab. Hello, I'm Nick Lansley. Welcome to the second season of Innovation Lab. It's coming up to a year after leaving Tesco, incredible, when I can be a little bit more, shall we say, chatty about how we made innovation work in that company. But in this episode, listen in to my interview with Telecom TV's Martin Warwick, who was interested to learn of my past and thoughts on the state of innovation in retail. Hello, this is Telecom TV. We are here in Gerrard's Cross, north of London, in the country, in the Stockbroker Belt, uh, and we are at the uh, Internet of Retail event. And I'm talking with Nick Lansley, who is Director and Innovation Insider at Lansley Consultants. Hello there. Nick, very welcome. Thank We've you. had a good chat off camera. Let's continue it on here. What does an Innovation Insider do or consist of? Uh, well, I call myself an Innovation Insider because I have a past. And my past is with a FTSE 100 company, Tesco. I'm delighted to be one of the founders, one of many people who founded the Tesco online service in the mid-1990s. And although we didn't call it innovation, we, we had to forge a path of innovation through a legacy company, which was 50 years old by then, mm. uh, 70 now, and uh, make a brand new technology work for customers who are using the online service. And uh, I call myself an insider because we uh, made innovation work in Tesco. And what I'm aiming to do is to take that skill and that experience and make it work in other companies as well. Good, thank you. Now, so that was 20-odd years ago you did, you did Tesco online. It must have yes. been cutting edge at the time. It was. Was it one of the very, were you one of the very first to do it? We weren't quite the very first, but we were one of the big significant players, particularly in the UK, and absolutely the first for grocery. Um, uh, this is bearing in mind a time when the web browser had only just been discovered. Mm. Everybody was on America Online or yeah. CompuServe. I remember um, it very well. Everybody had those dial-up modems that back then were at like 28.8 kilobits yep. per second. And we were trying to sell 30,000 food products uh, <laughs> from a, a large catalogue. Bit of a challenge. Bit of a challenge to customers. Mm. Um, and so using what today we call innovation, back then is we just worked out how on earth this was going to work. And this was about thinking of a rough circle from the customer putting together their order to having it delivered and looking at the roughest part of that rough circle and trying to smooth it with either process or, in my case, because I was a technologist, it's some technology to make it better and then look at the next roughest part and so on and so on, so all the way through to this sort of, sort of day. Shining, down. exactly. Yeah. And, and it, it was rough. It looked great on a website or, or on a CD-ROM application they used to have, <laughs> yes, where they used to choose their items offline and then go online just to place the order. Um, and all the paperwork that would happen behind the scenes to make all that work through to what I like to think is a very highly sophisticated and custom homegrown operation that Tesco have been left with today. Well, it's a great legacy. It's, and it was great fun. Hard to work, but great fun. <laughs> let's move on then, Nick, and let's talk about... We're here at this uh, internet of retail yeah. um, event, and um, I'd like to ask you to begin with, what impact do you think the Internet of Things is having on the retail industry right now? 
I think the 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 big uh, challenge has been the fact that customers are moving at a pace to move away from desktop computing to the mobile phone and they're taking that even further now with devices in their home that, that themselves can talk, talk directly to a retailer if they're providing service. So um, um, the Tesco, for example, Tesco mobile groceries app, app was very successful because people could just think of things as they walked around and it was, it, it was very useful for them to actually do that. Um, but what we have now is this incredible world of sensors. It's like a, a digital nervous system that's been created around the world, mm. which is creating an enormous amount of data. So you, are, you can either be a creator of that data um, or you could be an aggregator or user of that data and look for patterns. Mm. So, so there are opportunities for retail in the world of creating um, um, services, such as grocery home shopping, a good example, through to, to taking data that others are creating and, and find new patterns and new uses for it. A very good example is, um, being a bit of a technologist myself, I have a weather station at home which communicates every minute to a global citizen's weather forecasting service so that, so that that system can actually create very accurate weather forecasts around the world. Just from thousands of people like me around the country, um, just measuring the wind and the rain and every, every few minutes. I hope you do better than remember Michael Fish and there isn't going to be a I hurricane. Do. I think he could have done with the Internet of Things. We just weren't there in time. Exactly. Big number crunching. Yes. Okay, thank you. So let's take it from the point of view then as an innovation insider. Your clients, the people that you work with, um, they presumably have policies and strategies in terms of the Internet of re Retail. Yes. How do you see them going about forming those strategies and policies and how well does it work? Do they know what they're doing in the world? Um, to a certain extent they do if they've been in the game for a while, particularly with um, e-commerce. Um, so or, or any form of um, very important digital presence that's part of their main channel. Mm. Um, so Tesco's a very good example of doing that and there are other retailers as well because they form patterns of behaviour and they can begin to spot and forecast changes in that behaviour. Um, whenever new services are, are bought online, whether it's the product mix that might change through to the way that the customer is communicating. And um, what a lot of companies are, could do a lot better at, and some companies are doing a great job of, is trying to make these channels work together. So how do you make the in-store channel help online sales? How do you make online help the in-store channel. So if you've been looking at something online, we could detect you from your mobile phone and then offer up interesting offers as you walk in through the store. So the channels are trying to help each other. Um, a lot of companies are completely different companies online to in-store. You know, they may as well call are. themselves different names. So, so the, the strategy and the policy that works best is where you're trying to make the channels work with each other. But there's one word I don't like, and that's omni-channel, which, which alludes to an, a homogenized mess of a thing. Let each channel have its own uniqueness, but allow that channel to point in the direction of the other channels and allow those channels to work with each other. So there's no one way of mashing it all together. No. But it does sound a bit redolent of omni-shambles, doesn't it? Uh, yes, it does. And that is what you end up with, because no channel is particularly good. Mm. Each channel should celebrate its own uniqueness. When you walk into a store, there should be theatre and, and um, you know, lots of good service and products all nicely displayed and, and uh, a, a sense of occasion. Online, um, particularly with uh, grocery home shopping, you're, you're, you're kind of buying, for, you're buying convenience and so yes. you want things to be almost a quartermaster store where you have lists of stuff and you can get through them quickly because no one gets excited about the loo rolls and the nappies and stuff. <laughs> so get strange. through that. <laughs> but, but get through that. Yeah. So, so each channel 
uh, of the most successful retailers has actually they've thought about the customer experience for that channel, but then pointed in the customer in the directions of the ones where necessary. Where, for example, it may be that you can have this, but you'll need can have it tomorrow, or go down the road and get it from the in-store channel today. And by the way, we'll get you to the aisle and the shelf where that particular product is. Helping each other, even though they might lose sales in that channel. Right. So one policy is lose the online sales director versus the in-store director. They they should be working as one, not competing with each other. Interesting. Really interesting. That now. You've talked about the benefits and the way things work. What about the pitfalls? There always are some. One of the things that we see with large organisations, corporations, is, a, is an inbuilt reluctance and resistance to change. Corporate psychology, yes. the way things work. That's with the big ones, but there's lots and lots of smaller ones that are not involved in that. But what do you see as being the major pitfall? Um, I think historically, in my experience, and this will be a terrible thing for me to say because I've been at one place for so long, and that is that where you try and get people who've been at a, at a company and, and are in with the culture and the politics for so long, oh, trying to then go on and do something new, what you do need is to get new, new fresh eyes, new fresh ideas coming from outside. So there is a little bit of um, a kind of... I don't want to say promiscuity between some of the retailers, <laughs> but, but fresh thought coming in. Um, you, you shouldn't be making it your career to try and follow your way up through one company to the top because you will not be the best fit for that future. Sure. But you might be a great fit for another company's future in a, in a different sector. So don't be afraid as, as, the, as the head of a company to bring in fresh eyes, fresh ideas, and, and, and they can be game-changing it and can sweep away the old. But that's often, particularly in large hierarchical organizations that can yes. be perceived as a threat it it can but when you are wanting to get the the best talent in to get a new channel channel up and running uh, you you just have to uh, be a little bit brutal um, <laughs> one I won't say the company the person who said this but once someone said that when it comes to these old ideas and this old legacy thinker you have to kind of bayonet the wounded and get them out the door and get some fresh people in <laughs> and those fresh people don't have to be youngsters incidentally just fresh faces that mm. have come from a different field coming at it with new eyes yes with new eyes. Old eyes yes yeah. exactly okay. exactly as far as you know from your experience and expertise, where do retailers get their IoT technology from? For example, do they go to the traditional service providers like Vodafone or BT or Virgin or whatever it may be? Or do they lease or do they buy packaged off-the-shelf solutions from systems integrators? Or do they go to retail-specific, sector-specific vendors, you know, like the yes. people who make smart shelving and that kind of stuff? Um, I think I can distill that down into the big agonizing questions that we've always had in, in a large company, and that is buy versus build. Um, if you oh, yes. <laughs> build something, it will be absolutely tuned to the business model that you, you've, you've foreseen in your forecasting. Mm. If you buy it, you kind of have to shoehorn that into, into that particular system. But of course, then, of course, it's very quick, so you can get to market very quickly. So um, there are so many different ways of doing this. One of the ways that um, I promoted at Tesco um, my role at, as head of open innovation was to actually go to startups and look at um, how what their business models were, what uh, the customers that they were reaching out to, the suppliers they were talking to, what unique place in the ecosystem they were actually able to place their business model and see if that was a fit for our customers. Um, sometimes we built our own systems. A lot of the um, early APIs we built, which are technologies for talking to other devices, such mm. as mobile phones, mm. um, we built ourselves because there was nothing out there. Um, our first mobile phone app was out e for Tesco, this is for in 2009, and there was nothing 
behind it. Uh, so we built the system completely from scratch all ourselves. Today, we would uh, go and buy that from somebody or connect it in as a module from, an, from another Indeed. system. Yeah. So if you want to be fast to market and get things going, but you don't mind the business model skewing slightly because you have to fit it in, then fine. Because you can learn very quickly. Mm. You may find that their way is better, incidentally. Um, but, if, but if there was something interesting and unique you wanted to bring, that might get compromised. If you build, as long as you can build fast using agile processes where you build a little bit, try it with customers or whatever your user group is, mm. then, then uh, you can then kind of tune it, evolve it as it goes along, then that will work. And ultimately, you'll end up with absolutely the thing that you and your customers are looking for. So, so there, is, there, there is no one answer. Just be careful about thinking that you'll get to market next week if you buy off the shelf or buy a new system in because, believe me, the interconnect is behind the yeah. scenes. That's what's going to hold you up, and yeah. you're going to get very upset with these poor infrastructure people. Um, as for cloud computing, well, this is a, like um, electricity versus your own generator. So I have to say, uh, uh, Tesco would mind me saying this, is we, um, if you think of electricity, uh, occasionally electricity would fail, but stores have to keep on trading, so most large stores have their own generator, and they have wind turbines and stuff on the roof and things. Mm. So it wasn't always perfect. So uh, it's great having the idea of a cloud, um, and it can be very cheap, just like electricity is, because not having to run your own um, you know, capital investment on generators. But the problem is, is that um, occasionally that's going to fail because you, that your cloud is somebody else's ground and somebody's going to sever the wires with their bulldozer one day and then you go off as the air, do. as they do. And what can they do? You, all you can do is wait while the CEO rings you up wondering why your servers are offline. You can just go, well, there's nothing I can do, I've got to wait. If it was your own server, you could you know, be knocking the heads together to get it going again. So you have to be careful with the arguments around the kind of cloud versus doing some of this stuff yourself. And if you get the right mix, one is a backup for the other, that would work very well. And I have to say, Tesco and all, most of the other FTSE 100 companies still have the mainframe. It is still there. There are still programs written in COBOL, which is an ancient programming language sure in those terms, yeah. um, doing amazing stuff because it's sheer raw power. So um, great, the cloud and something else, but but at least you have control of your own power and you must never take that away if it's, if it's important enough. If Tesco don't have any data for two days, can you imagine what would happen to yeah. it? You know, just in time and stuff. Yeah, exactly. uh, so that goes for all the supermarket yeah. data and that's key. You've got to think of that. Interesting. What about then, let's talk about partnerships and collaborations because one thing that typifies the age we're in now, and data and everything else, yeah. is the number of companies collaborating with one another technologically in a way they would never have done before. They'd have been stabbing yes. each other in the front, never mind the back, you know, and they wouldn't work together. But now we have lots and lots of partnerships, collaborations, yes. which can be open-ended. Do, yes. do, do you see those being the way to the future also with the uh, internet of retail? Yes, I do. In fact, the, the great analogy is uh, in politics where you might be to governments loggerheads and threatening war, but all the scientists and everybody else is getting on like yeah. wildfire with each other. <laughs> um, so you, the, the, there are lots of partnerships that you can, you can do um, if it's for the common good, or if the, if the, the job is so large it's gonna require an industry solution. Um, and so what um, increasingly has happened is that there are organizations being formed where those companies can become members and they, they follow on purpose. Sure. Very good example, and it, it is one that I'm working with on some programs at the moment is GS1, who created the barcode. And they have all the large companies, anybody who wants to create a barcode is a member of GS1, and they create all the supply chain standards that they've done for the last 40 years. Um, not for profit, it's the one organization. And it's the way that Sainsbury's and Tesco and Asda and others can work together 
in a safe environment, in other words, the scientists can do the job and deliver something great for absolutely everybody. So where that is the case, um, that, is, that works really well. Um, another good example is where you can have a certain amount of Chinese walls, but, but, but there is a common good, and that is a good example is Dunhumby, which is uh, partly owned by Tesco and partly owned by Kroger in the US. Oh, yes, in the States, yeah. Um, and the, the Tesco can't see Kroger stage, and Kroger can't see Tesco quite rightly, um, but, the, but Dunhumby are able to, to do, get the best from the data to create the best possible algorithms for, for, for all the targeting that they will do for marketing. So the larger the amount of data, the more pattern forming you can get, and then that's used for the benefit of all the customers of Dunhumby, a very good example. So there are ways of doing it, Without uh, without it looking like you're actually colluding too much, which is of course the other extreme, um, or at, at, at daggers with each other. Last question to you, Nick. The traditional network operator, the BTs, the DTs, the FTs of, of this world, the communication carriers. They've got big networks. They're putting and spending a lot of money virtualizing them and the cloud and NFV and SDN and all the rest of it. And they have considerable expertise and experience in um, IoT themselves. Anyway, they've got yes. huge networks, got lots of bandwidth. They're big and they're solid and they're you know they've been around a while. But lots of people that I've spoken to say, well, that's not really relevant to us. We can do lots of things without that. Do you see? And I think a lot of people also are slightly afraid of getting locked in, the locked-in syndrome. You know, we're going to be locked into BT forever and we can't we'll be able to get out of it and everything else of it. Hard to break away from down the line. What do you think is the future for the traditional network operator in the retail or the internet of retail? Well, I, I think they have a great future, and that future is doing a brilliant job of networking but remaining invisible for it, but just being best-of-breed, world-class in networking capability. Um, so many companies forget because the, the internet's always there, like the electricity, uh, that, that um, they can then do without them when in fact they're using them as a backbone. Um, Absolutely. And it's a bit like the road system. Loads of people drove here today and you didn't think uh, anything of the fact that you could drive here today. There might have been the odd traffic jam. But nevertheless, that road system was always there. Um, and the, the analogy is, is the same with these networking companies. They just need to be the best at being the conduit and people should respect them for the work they do. Behind the scenes, and I am a technologist, it is very difficult providing network services. Um, things are always breaking down, you just never really know about them, except occasionally when some people on Twitter notice. So, <laughs> so they, and, and it's like electricity, um, I would love it if everybody watching this show tomorrow morning turned on their computer and uh, got onto their web browser and the internet was there and they went, hurrah, the internet's back this morning, isn't it amazing? You assume it's there, you only get upset with your right. network colleagues if it's not. Same with electricity, if the electricity goes, you get upset, but you don't say, hurrah, the lights have come on this morning, I can, I can have my coffee, you know. So, so you've got to have respect for the people who have actually do such a good job, they've become invisible to our thinking, because if they go away, it's game over for the internet, it's game over for trading, it's game over for e-commerce. If you can't get that link to the customer, it's, that's the end. So, uh, you know, make sure that they do their job, but respect them for it. Fascinating interview, really enjoyed it. Nick Lambie, thank you very much indeed. Great to be here, thank you.